You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Today, traditionally, is a day that the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, are celebrated. Um, It's a feast. It's a celebration. The Feast of the Holy Family. Now, when we say Holy Family, we, we often think, I think, in very kind of sentimental terms. Like, certainly they must have been the perfect family. Joseph, the perfect father, Mary, the perfect mother, and Jesus, the perfect son. I mean, have you ever thought about what it would have been like to have grown up as one of Jesus' siblings, right? For those of you who have an older sibling who is kind of revered in the family, I mean, imagine, like, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> Jesus never did that, right? I mean, that could be a really difficult thing to do. Um, I've wondered, I mean, just, just this week, uh, Angela had said something, uh, someone, not me, I don't think, had left the refrigerator door open. And she's like, what, were you raised in a barn? To which I said, is, is, do a lot of barns have refrigerators? <laughs> but can you imagine, can you imagine uh, Mary saying that to Jesus? Were you born in a barn? Oh, wait a minute. Maybe you were. <laughs> but yeah, so we think of that family, and family is such an important part of our lives It's such an important part about how God has created things. Like, we were meant to be together. We were meant to kind of share our lives in certain ways, to kind of be a family. And when we talk about the Holy Family, one of the things I want to kind of get across to us today is that while certainly they were holy, they were also a regular family. They had typical problems. They were real people. And Families are made of real people. So the very word holy, it doesn't just mean kind of like morally superior or kind of ethically sound. Holy means set apart for God. It means sacred. It means kind of to be used by God. And that holy family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are used by God in a variety of ways. And one of the ways I think they're used by God is to kind of show us an example about how family is supposed to work, how families are supposed to be. So, as we said, this family, this holy family, was not void of their own struggles. I mean, we have a teenage mom who's pregnant before marriage. We have an anxious dad who's contemplating divorce, like maybe the best thing for me to do is to to divorce her. Like, the, the text, the way, the way Matthew talks about it, he was doing it in a respectful way. He wasn't going to publicly shame her. He was just going to quietly get it done. But that's what he thought the right thing to do was. Then we see that they're forced to become refugees. They flee from Herod, and they end up in Egypt, a land in which their ancestors had been slaves. Um, we don't know much about what happened during Jesus' childhood, But the one story that we do get out of Luke's gospel is that Jesus got lost. His parents lost him on a family vacation. And they were already on their way back home when they realized he wasn't in the caravan. 
not the Dodge Caravan, but just a regular like camel caravan, I imagine. People walking together with some, some donkeys and stuff. But they're like, hey, is Jesus with you? No. Well, is he with them? No. So they have to turn around and go back. Imagine, you're talking about anxiety. Imagine the anxiety of not having your child with you. I mean, this is like a perennial problem, right? Like, I remember once getting lost from my mom. We were at Rose's. Rose's is like a precursor to Walmart. It's, um, you know, it's one of those big kind of box store things. I don't know how I lost her. I was following her along. Something, I guess, caught my attention. I was, you know, easily distracted little boy. Kind of an easily distracted adult, I guess, but... I was a really easily distracted little boy, and I was looking at something, and then I looked up, and she was gone. So I run to the end of the aisle, and I run back. And then you run down the other aisles, kind of looking down, you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, you can't find her. And I start to tear up. And um, a worker finds me, and he's like, where's your mom? I'm like, I don't know. And so they take me to the front, and then, you know, it's over the intercom system, would the mother of Robbie Waddell uh, please come to, you know, whatever, the information desk or whatever is up front? So I was pretty young when that happened, but it has stuck with me all these years later. And when I think of Jesus and his experience, I wonder what it was like for him when his parents had left him. And then, of course, I've experienced that as an adult. Have you ever been somewhere and you can't find your kid? Like, whether it's the grocery store or, God forbid, it's like Disney World, you turn around and they're not immediately right there, your heart kind of drops. You're like, oh, no, what's happened? So they had that experience, too. Um, early in his ministry, Jesus was doing some pretty miraculous things, but he was also making some pretty grandiose claims. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that his mother and his siblings, um, Joseph apparently is out of the story. We only see Joseph when Jesus is a boy. Like the last time we hear of Joseph is that story where he got left behind on the family vacation. Well, uh, scholars have suggested perhaps that Joseph had passed away by the time that Jesus was an adult. But Jesus, as an adult, is making these claims. And his mom and his siblings show up to try and take him back home. They show up in Capernaum where he was living. And they're like, hey, we're his family. He's a little out of it. We're going to take him back to Nazareth. Like they thought he was, was losing it. And it was at that point that Jesus looked around and said, who is my father? Who is my mother? Who is my brother or sister? The one who does the will of God is, is my family. And so he starts to redefine what family looks like, not simply around biology, but around faith. And this, this imagery of the family of God is one that gets used and used and used again kind of throughout the scriptures. The, the church calendar also marks off this day, this day in which we celebrate the holy family with two other holidays, we'll call them. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, was the feast of uh, St. Stephen. And you'll know his story. He's the first martyr of, of the Christians, right? Stephen was professing the, Jesus, and he said the temple is kind of no longer valuable. And they're like, you can't say that. And he said, I'm telling you, it's the truth. And they stoned him to death. 
And that's, that's the celebration on December 26th. Tomorrow, on December 28th, is the Feast of the Innocents, which is a funny thing to have a feast about, I guess. But the celebration of the innocents remembers the other children from Bethlehem who were slaughtered by Herod the Great when he was attempting to kill Jesus. Remember that story? They killed all the baby boys that were two and under. So on either side of this celebration of the Holy Family, we have the celebration of martyrdom and the celebration of this, these children that died. So part of what I think all of this does for us is in the, in the midst of the celebration of the birth of Christ, we are quickly reminded, if we kind of keep these holidays, that the, the coming of Jesus is good news, but the coming of Jesus is also folded together with, with the full story of what's going to happen to him, right? It's the full story. It's not just his birth. It's his life. It's his ministry. It's his rejection by his generation. It's his death. It's his resurrection. That the story kind of comes into focus fairly quickly. And this is what happens. So when we think about family, and we think about the scriptures, and we think about this holy family and the examples that they give for us, we see in the scriptures that there is, there is direction to both uh, children, there's direction to parents, uh, there's directions to children and parents together. So in terms of the direction towards children, we're all familiar with the Ten, Commandment, Ten Commandments, and the Fourth Commandment is honor your mother and father, right? And your days will be prolonged. And so you get this kind of direction for children to honor their parents. But in those household codes that we get in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, there's, there's, there's rules, right, for husbands and wives. There's rules for children and parents. There's even rules for, for slaves and masters, which, of course, today we would want to dismiss, dismiss that kind of slavery as even a possibility of, of, a, of a faithful way to follow Jesus. But in this kind of description of, of parents and children, again, there's a statement to children to obey their parents, but then the statement to the parents goes like this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and an instruction of the Lord. Two things stand out to me there. One, the idea that we're not to provoke our children to anger. We're, we're to guard their hearts. We're, we're not to kind of give them cause for rebellion or give them cause for anger. And the other thing is this, the instruction to the children was to obey their parents, but the instruction to the parents was focused on the father, telling the father not to provoke their children to anger. So I wonder, I wonder why the mothers were not left out there. I mean, is it okay for mothers to provoke their children to anger? Like, I don't think that's what it's saying. Yeah, that, yeah that, I don't think so. That's, I don't think that's what's supposed to happen anyway. But I think in much the same way when we talked about husbands and wives, the instruction for the wives were relatively short in comparison to the instruction, instruction to the husbands. And I take it to mean this, that the, the men have maybe more to learn when it comes to how to function in a Christian way here. 
Like, because, because of the patriarchal structure of the society, children or women or slaves get less instruction because they're already in kind of a subservient position. So if you're going to follow Christ and you're going to be a servant, they have less to learn. They, they were already in that kind of, uh, again, kind of subordinate or servant uh, posture. But the dads, the men, maybe not so much. They, they were used more so to being served. But if, if Paul's kind of laying out for uh, a situation, this is how we ought to behave as Christians, then he's going to have to give a bit more instruction, particularly to the men, to say, well, to function as a Christian husband or to function as a Christian father, you have to understand these, these, these other people around you aren't just here to serve you. In fact, you're to serve them. Even your children who are told to obey you, you're told not to provoke them to anger, but to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And so you start to see how, how the Holy Family and how this vision of family is a bit countercultural. It's, it's not so hierarchical. It's a way, it's, um, they're showing us examples of the way in which we might live, where we would care more for the other, that we would see our role as one of responsibility that kind of holds up and supports, and not just one that rules over. Um, Jesus is the perfect example in that, right? Jesus is the head of the body, but Jesus is the one who kind of serves the body. He's the one who lays his life on the line. He's the one who sacrifices. What's interesting about families and marriages is that they kind of start, you know, with a wedding ceremony. Now, obviously, the people have met met each other before the wedding ceremony, but The wedding ceremony is one of the few things that we still do in Christian circles that have kept some of the the kind of traditions, the the pomp and circumstance, right? So most of what we do nowadays is is relatively informal, right? We, you know, we open up our prayers. Hey, God, how you doing this morning? You know, we're we're really kind of familial. (laughs) We're really kind of chill with the way in which we practice the Christian faith. So maybe the one, maybe two places, funerals and weddings, but particularly weddings, we're still fairly formal, right? We dress up for those things. We have the procession and we have the recession. We have, you know, the scripture reading. We have the vows, all those sorts of things. But what's one of the things that I find very interesting about a Christian wedding, unlike other things that Christians do, those practices that we practice, say like baptism or communion or what have you. The minister has this real primary role in those things. Like in baptism, it's the minister who's saying the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? In communion, it's the minister who's saying the words, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, right? The minister is playing that kind of senior officiate role in, in the process, but traditionally, in Christian circles, at a wedding, the minister is just a witness. And the actual ministers of the sacrament are the couple. 
Like, they are saying the holy words. They say their vows, and then they say, I do. That, in that practice, the, it's, not, it's not the, the ordained kind of uh, leader position who, who's playing the, the most significant role. It's the couple. They're serving that way for one another. They're making their vows. And when you attend a wedding, one of the things that, as a Christian practice, you can do is you don't just watch them say their vows. You, like the minister, bear witness to it. And as you bear witness to it, you kind of remember, if you are married, your own marital vows. And you can kind of recommit to those. Baptism, I think, works in that same way. When we see someone be baptized, the idea is not just like, oh, that's nice for them. Isn't that nice? We've watched them be baptized. But we're not spectators as much as we are witnesses. We are bearing witness to their baptism. And in, in, in such, we are also remembering our baptismal vows. This, this what a, the connection I'm trying to make here is that being a family, in whatever way that looks like, and I know there's, there's lots and lots of different uh, types of families these days. There's, you know, there's singles, there's married, there's with children, there's without children, there's blended families, you know, first marriages and second marriages and third marriages and, the, you know, her kids and his kids. And there's lots of different shapes that, that families do take these days. But family, whatever shape it takes, is kind of built on this commitment, right? It's built on this vow. And the family of God functions much the same way, that we make a commitment to one another. We pray for one another. We care for one another. I've had this, I haven't had this conversation lately, but I used to have this conversation all the time with the students at the college, right? They'd move, they've moved to Lakeland from someplace else, right? And I would talk to them about, well, where are you going to church? This is, this is even before I came to Oasis, like early, early on in my teaching career. And, and they would say, well, I've tried this one, and I tried that one, and I've tried this other one over here. And they're, they're trying on church the same way they might try on shoes that they're thinking about buying. Like, does this, is this a good fit for me? Does it, does it have the right services? And I think it's, a, it's an inverted view of what church is supposed to be. Church, first and foremost, is not some place that we come to be served. It's a place that we come to serve. And if you think about church as a place in which you can serve, then, then it's not so easy for you to kind of um, find some place, right? If you're looking to be served, you might have to look and look and look in lots of different places to see what serves you well. But if you're looking to serve, you don't have to look very far. Every place is a place where you can serve. And if you think of that service as a worship service, then the service is come someplace you come to give your worship. It's some place that you come to fellowship. It's some place that you come to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. 
So when we have our prayers of the people on a Sunday morning, those prayers have been written by, you know, folks in the congregation, and they're about the congregation. They're about the passages of Scripture that are being preached on. They share the needs of the community, right? And so in particular, one of the needs that we keep coming back to and, and these days is, is our health, is our public health, right? We're praying for these families who are sick or have tested positive for COVID. We're praying for these families who haven't tested positive, right, that they might stay safe. We're praying for our frontline workers, our doctors and our nurses, our police officers, our firefighters, our public school teachers, those who work in public transit or those who teach in public school, people who their lives, their daily lives kind of put them now at risk because they're in the public, despite the fact that there's a pandemic. And so we care for them and we pray for them. And that's, that's a commitment. So we're, we're making a vow. So at Oasis, we don't have church membership. Um, we have kind of a, a, kind of a low um, ecclesiology, a low kind of doctrine of the church in that regard. And we kind of, we identify ourselves not so much as members, but as Oasians, right? It's our identity. It's, it's the church that we identify with. But you shouldn't understand that, that, that that's somehow a low commitment, right? It's, it's a high commitment. Like, it can't be a Christian church without a high commitment. So we might not have the formality that some of the other churches that you've been associated with have, but... In our doctrine and what we believe and what we practice, we're still here, right? We're still following these scriptures and this commitment of what a holy family would look like, right? Uh, thank you. Uh, um, Joseph and Mary are committed to each other, and they're both committed to Jesus. And Jesus, as he grows, will grow and become committed to his mom and dad. The gospel passage for today, which, which we didn't read, but the gospel passage for today ends, it's from the gospel of Luke, and it tells the story of Jesus' um, dedication and his circumcision you know, at the temple, and it's, it's a wonderful story, but it ends with this really interesting phrase, and it's only in Luke's gospel. It says, and he grew, talking about Jesus, and he grew in wisdom and stature, that is, he learned things he didn't know before, and he got bigger. Now, on, on the one hand, that's an obvious, you know, if a baby's born, the baby doesn't stay a baby. It grows up, and as the baby grows up, it gets bigger. And as the baby grows up, it learns things it didn't know before. But what does that mean for Jesus? The early church really struggled with that passage particularly when they wanted to talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human. How could Jesus be fully God if he's still growing? How could Jesus be fully God if he's still learning? And they, they were okay with that dissonance. They were okay with that mystery because they were committed to the text, to the scriptures as being their teacher, not just their ideas how things should work, but let's look at the scriptures and see what it actually says. And what it actually said was, he grew in wisdom and stature. And so they said, well, that must be how it worked. He's fully God, he's fully human, but nevertheless, his fully humanness, whatever that meant was, he grew, he, he learned, he, he got bigger. Now, I don't want to think on that too much, that might make my head hurt. But, but what I do want to focus on 
is that that's what family is like. We don't always get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we're at odds with our own family members. Sometimes Jesus was at odds with his own family members, right? They're saying, hey, he's lost his mind. And he's saying, yeah, who's my real family here? <laughs> so that's what I think it's like. It's not, it's not always easy, but it's also not always hard. In fact, a lot of the times it is easy. It's easy not because we're trouble-free, it's easy because the depth of our commitment sustains us, nevertheless. Like, I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm, I'm committed to you. Now, the epistle passage for today comes from Galatians. And this is an idea that we have talked a fair amount about, particularly I've talked a lot about it the last couple of years. But, but let's just, let me just read to you this passage from Galatians. Galatians 4 says this, But when the, fullness of the time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. God's family is an adopted family. Now, we, earlier I talked about all the different types of families, right? So single families and married families and families with kids and families without kids and blended families. But I didn't mention when I went down that litany earlier, kind of foster families or adopted families. That's another type of family that we have. We're, we're kind of born in one, one location and in one context, but because of a variety of reasons, we end up in a new context with new, with new family members, right? So you can be kind of family by blood, you can be family by marriage, and you can be family kind of legally, and it's that, it's that idea of kind of the legal family that Paul's leaning into here in Galatians. That we've, we've become adopted. Paul will talk of this is, this is, by the way, this is a very young Paul. Galatians is perhaps the earliest writing of Paul. <clears throat> and so he's already thinking through what this looks like. And part of what's driving Paul, because he'll say it, he said it earlier in Galatians 3. He said, you're neither male nor female. You're neither Jew nor Greek. You're neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when we come to the cross, right, as the old preachers like to say, the ground is level at the cross. I heard that a lot when I was a kid. And then I would always see those pictures where the cross was like on a hill. And I'm like, what is, what is he talking about? The ground is level. So it's not like physically level, but it's metaphorically level. Another famous, or famous might not be the right word, but another phrase that I heard a lot growing up is that God has children, but God doesn't have grandchildren. God has children, but not grandchildren. We are all God's children. We, we all come to the table. We all come to the cross as equals, as the children of God. And in the ancient world, that was often not the case, right? 
They were divided economically. You were in stratas. They were divided ethnically, right? And so there was this belief that if you were Jewish, you were part of the people of God. But if you weren't Jewish, you were kind of an outsider. But even early on, even, even in the Old Testament, we see these outsiders start to be included, right? So like Rahab from, from Jericho, she gets included. And she was not Jewish. We also say other things about her, but we can leave that off today. But there, there are other people, like in Proverbs, the King um, Agur and King Lemuel, their, their words get included, right? There are these God-fearers, these proselytes, these people who weren't born into Judaism, but they had adopted it. <laughs> they had adopted it religiously. But maybe better put, God had adopted them. Even Israel, the prophets will say, was adopted. Israel was not born as the people of God. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel will say that Israel was like a baby, like still in its kind of birth fluids, <laughs> lying in the desert. And God passed by her and said, you are my child. So you get this imagery of adoption of Israel. And so Paul will say this in other texts too. Later in life, he'll write Romans and he'll say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. First the Jew and then the Greek. So this is a visual. So I need you all to look up here for a minute. And if you're, if you're watching online, look up from your phone or iPad or whatever else you might be preoccupied with in the moment and focus on the screen. When, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God of salvation, first to the Jew and then the Greek, he's not setting up a hierarchy. It's not first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So that if you're Jewish, you're kind of a first-class citizen. You were born into the family of God. But if you're Gentile or Greek, you can get adopted, which is kind of like being in the family, but we all know you weren't born in the family. You were just adopted, right? You're second class. Paul's not making a hierarchy. He's talking chronologically how things happen. The gospel comes first to the Jew and then to the Greek, right? It didn't come to Egypt. It didn't come to Babylon. It didn't come to Assyria or Rome or Greece or Persia. It came to Abraham, right? It came to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. But now it's been expanded and it has included the, the Greeks, the Gentiles. And so once you have them together chronologically, the Jews and the Greeks, you add them together and we get the whole people of God. That's, Paul starts there in Romans 1 and he wraps up his theological statement in Romans 11 saying much the same thing. He goes, look, the family of God is like a tree. And there's this branch, we'll call it Israel, had been cut off. So now Israel's cut away from the tree. So God takes this other branch from elsewhere, the Gentiles, and he grafts it into the tree. So it's grafted in. So Paul will say, well, what about Israel? What will happen to her? And he says, I'll tell you what will happen to her. He's asked the question rhetorically. God takes the branch that was cut off and he grafts it back in. So now all of Israel, he says, is saved. But all of Israel 
is now two main branches, ancient Israel, ethnic Israel, and the Gentiles, but they have all been grafted in. They have all been adopted. No one is saved by birth. No one is justified by birth. Paul will say we're not justified by birth. We're justified by faith. And it's our faith in Jesus, right? And maybe, even better put, it's Jesus' own faithfulness, right, that makes this a family. And that's how it works. And so, because in the fullness, when the fullness of time has come, as it says here in Galatians, and that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so they might receive to be adopted as children. And that's what we are. We are God's children. And as God's children, that makes us brothers and sisters. We have the same father. And so... When we come to church, part of what we're learning is to learn kind of the family traditions. This is how our family lives. These are the words that we say. These are the events that we celebrate. This, this, is, this is our lives. And, of course, it means much more than that. It's not just what we do on Sundays. That would be like saying a family is reduced to just what they do on holidays, on their feast days, Right? But family is every day. It's, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it's month after month, and it's year after year, and it's decade after decade. And we didn't, we didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose what families we'd be born in, what decade we'd be born in. None of that was our choice. It just kind of happened, and here we are. And now we're finding out that other things have been happening too. It wasn't our choice for God to send his son. It wasn't our choice for Jesus to be crucified. It wasn't our choice for Jesus to be resurrected. This is all God's work being done for us. This is why we titled our Advent series, Unto Us. Unto us a child is born. Unto us is given peace and joy and hope and love. And we pray that the way that then should work is that all that has been given to us is more than what we can contain. So that sharing it with others should become natural. It should literally be like second nature. So if we envision yourself as a glass and envision Jesus full of the Spirit, full of divinity, being poured into humanity. Except that Jesus never loses any bit of his divinity, any bit of the Spirit, right? Jesus can keep pouring without his container ever being emptied at all. And it gets poured into us, our containers, but our containers can't contain it. So it overflows. And where does it go then? Well, it goes to others, which is what this is all about. 
We are the family of God. We have been adopted. And our role, part of our role anyway, is to share that good news with others. The people you work with, the people in your family, your neighbors, they too are children of God. Well, you might say, well, I know people who aren't Christian. Well, who do you think created them? Well, I know people who actually are anti-Christian. Well, whose image do you think they were created in? I know some pretty evil people. I've done some pretty evil things. When we see the other, what we should see is a child of God who perhaps hasn't been adopted yet. A child of God who hasn't been fostered yet. A child of God who's yet to come into the family but is nevertheless loved by the Father. Right? Even it doesn't, it doesn't matter who they are or what they are or what they've done. Jesus died for them. And if Jesus died for them, who are we to, to say other? And so one of, one of my goals for us in 2021, I had a lot of goals for 2020. They didn't all come true. That was a bit of a curveball. That was a rough one. But in 2021, we see that there's going to be a vaccine out and we're going to get past this pandemic. And what I want us to do is to, to share our, the good news of our family with others. Love them. Care for them. Share with them the joy and peace and hope. Right? Let them know that the, the one who actually created them loves them and wants to adopt them, wants to invite them to, a, to an abundant life. These are our traditions. These are our commitments. These are our prayers. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.